0: Book 6 chapters 29 through 44 of Commentaries on the Gallic War this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar translated by Thomas Rice Holmes Book 6 chapters 29 through 44 After ascertaining from the Ubian scouts that the Suebi had retreated into their forests, Caesar determined to advance no further. The Germans, as we have explained above, pay very little attention to agriculture, and he was therefore afraid of running short of corn. Still, to avoid releasing the natives altogether from the fear of his return, and to delay their reinforcements, after withdrawing the army, he broke down the end of the bridge for the length of 200 feet, which touched the Ubian bank, erected a tower with four stories on its extremity, and posted a detachment of twelve cohorts to protect the bridge, fortifying the position with strong works. A young officer, Gaius Fulcacius Tullus, was placed in command, and charged with the defense of the position. Now that the crops were beginning to ripen, Caesar started in person to conduct the campaign against Ambiorix, taking the route through the Ardennes, the largest forest in the whole of Gaul, which extends from the banks of the Rhine, the Trevor and Frontier, to the country of the Nervii, a distance of more than 500 miles. He sent on ahead Lucius Minucius Ballius, with all of the cavalry, in the hope that, by marching rapidly, and so arriving in good time, he might be able to strike an effective blow, enjoined him not to allow fires to be lighted in his camp, that there might be no distant sign of his approach, and promised to follow him immediately. Basilius carried out his instructions, making a rapid march, which upset all calculations. He surprised and seized a large number of men in the open country, and, following their directions, hastened to a place where Ambiorix himself, with a few horsemen, was said to be staying. Fortune is a great power in war, as in all other affairs. By a rare chance, Basilius came upon Ambiorix himself, while he was still off his guard and unprepared, and they all saw him coming before his approach was rumored or announced, and, by great good luck, although all the equipment which he had with him was looted and his carriages and horses seized, and Beierichs himself escaped death. His escape, however, was partly due to the fact that his house, like the dwellings of the Gauls in general, was surrounded by a wood, for, in order to escape the heat, they generally looked for sights near woods and rivers and accordingly his retainers and friends resisted for a time in this confined space the onslaught of our horsemen. While they were fighting, one of his followers mounted him on horseback, and the woods covered his flight. Thus fortune had much to do both with his peril and with his escape. Whether Ambiorix deliberately refrained from collecting his forces in the belief that it would be unwise to fight, or whether his inaction was due to want of time and the sudden arrival of the cavalry, which made him believe that the rest of the army was following, is doubtful. At all events he sent out messengers over the countryside, bidding every man shift for himself. Some fled into the Ardennes, others to unbroken stretches of morass. Those who lived nearest the ocean hid themselves in districts periodically insulated by the tides. Many quitted their own country, entrusted their lives and all that they possessed to utter strangers. Cato volcus, who, as king of one-half of the Aberones, had joined in the enterprise of Ambiorix, and was now a worn-out old man, unable to stand the hardships of campaigning or of flight, heartily cursed Ambiorix for having planned the enterprise, and poisoned himself with yew, a tree which grows abundantly in Gaul and Germany. The Segni and Condruci, who are Germans by race, and are reckoned among that people, and dwell among the Aberones and Treveri, sent envoys to Caesar, begging him not to count them as enemies, or to assume that all the Cisranine Germans were associated, and assuring him that they had never dreamed of war, and had sent no reinforcements to Ambiorix. Caesar, after testing their statements by examining prisoners, ordered them to hand over to them any Eberonian fugitives who joined them, and promised not to molest their country if they obeyed. He then broke up his forces into three divisions, and transferred the heavy baggage of all the legions to Aduatuca, the name denotes a fort, in which Terturius and Arancuelius had established themselves for the winter, and which is nearly in the center of the country of the Eburones. Amongst other reasons, Caesar had selected the position in order to spare the soldiers fatigue, as the fortifications made in the preceding year were still standing leaving the 14th legion, one of the three which he had brought from Italy, where they had recently been raised, to protect the baggage, he entrusted Quintus Tullius Cicero with the command of it, and the defense of the camp, and assigned him 200 cavalry. After dividing the army, he ordered Titus Lapienus to move towards the ocean with three legions into the districts bordering upon the country of the Manapii, and sent Gaius Trebonius with the same number, to devastate the region adjacent to the country of the Aduatuki, while he determined to march himself with the remaining three legions towards the river Schelt, which flows into the Meuse, and the most distant parts of the Ardennes, whither he had heard that Ambiorix had gone with a few horsemen. On his departure, he announced his intention for turning at the end of a week, when, as he was aware, the rations of the legions left on guard would be due, He enjoined Labienus and Trebonius to return by that day, if they could do so consistently with the public interest, so that, after comparing notes anew and ascertaining the enemy's methods, they might be able to form a fresh plan of campaign. As we have remarked above, there was no organized body, no stronghold, and no force capable of armed resistance. The population was dispersed in all directions. Everyone had taken up his abode, in any remote glen or wooded spot, or impenetrable morass that offered him a chance of defending himself, or of saving his life. The people near these places knew the ground, and great care was required, not indeed of protecting the army as a whole, for while the troops were massed, no danger could befall them from a panic-stricken and scattered enemy, but to secure the safety of individual soldiers. And yet, this, in some measure, concerned the safety of the whole army, Lust for plunder led many far afield, and the woods, with their ill-defined and dusky paths, defied compact bodies to enter them. If Caesar meant to finish the task outright and slaughter the whole brood of scoundrels, he must send out numerous parties and break up the troops into detachments. If he chose to keep his companies in formation, according to the established and familiar system of the Roman army, the natives were protected by the nature of the country, and the individuals among them had courage enough to lie in ambush and cut off scattered parties. In these difficult circumstances, all possible care and forethought were exercised, for it was determined to forego some advantage in punishing the enemy, although all were burning for revenge, rather than to punish him at the cost of any loss of the men. Caesar sent messengers to the neighboring tribes, holding out to all the hope of plunder, and inviting them to harry the Iberones, for he intended the Gauls should risk their lives in the forests, and not his legionaries, and at the same time to surround the people with a mighty host, and in requital for their signal villainy, to destroy them, root, branch, and name. Large numbers speedily assembled from every side. While these events were passing in all parts of the Iberonian territory, the last day of the week was approaching, by which time Caesar had determined to return to the legion that guarded his baggage. Now occurred an instance of the power which fortune wields in war, and of the hazards of which fortune is fraught. The enemy, as we have pointed out, were scattered and panic-stricken, and there was no force to give the slightest ground for alarm. The rumor made its way across the Rhine to the Germans that the Eberonis were being harried, and, what was more, that all comers were invited to plunder them the Sugambri, who dwelt in the immediate neighborhood of the Rhine, and who, as we have stated above, sheltered the Tentary and the Usipetes after their flight, raised two thousand horse, crossed the Rhine in barges and on rafts thirty miles below the spot where Caesar had built his bridge and had left a garrison, invaded the nearest part of the Iberonian territory, captured a large number of scattered fugitives, and seized a great quantity of cattle, which uncivilized peoples greatly prize. Lured on by the hope of plunder, they advanced further, and these born warriors and freebooters were not to be stopped by marsh or forest. They asked their prisoners whereabouts Caesar was, found that he had gone far away, and satisfied themselves that his whole army had quitted the neighborhood. Thereupon one of the prisoners asked, Why go after this wretched, worthless loot, when, in a twinkling, you can make your fortunes? In three hours you can get to Aduatuca, where the Roman army have stored all their belongings. The garrison are a mere handful, unable even to man the wall, and not a soul dares stir out of the entrenchments. Here was the chance. The Germans concealed and left behind the booty that they had got, and pushed on for Aduatuca, guided by the man from whom they had learned the news. Cicero, in obedience to Caesar's instructions, had been most careful to keep his troops every day in camp, not allowing a single servant to stir outside the entrenchment. On the seventh day, however, hearing more than once that Caesar had advanced to a great distance, and not receiving any intimation of his return, he was afraid that he would not keep his appointment, and at the same time he was disquieted by the remarks of the men who said that, if one mightn't even leave the camp... What he called patience was virtually submission to blockade, and with nine legions and a powerful body of cavalry in the field, and an enemy scattered and all but annihilated, he never expected such a contingency as a disaster within three miles of camp. Accordingly, he sent five cohorts to reap the nearest crops, which were only separated from the camp by a solitary hill. Many invalids belonging to the various legions had been left in camp. About 300 of these who had recovered in the course of the week were sent out with the cohorts under a separate command, and a large number of servants got permission to go as well, with a great quantity of baggage cattle, which had been stabled in the camp. Just at this critical moment, up came the German horsemen, and riding on without slackening speed, tried to break into the camp at the rear gate. Woods obstructed the view on that side, and they were not seen till they were getting close to the camp, so that the traders whose tents were at the foot of the rampart, had no chance of retreating. Our men, being off their guard, were startled by the suddenness of the attack, and the cohort on duty barely withstood the first shock. The enemy spread round the other sides to see if they could find an entrance. Our men, with difficulty, defended the gates, but the strength of the position, as well as the entrenchments, forbade any attempt to enter elsewhere. The whole camp was a scene of confusion, every man asking his neighbor the reason of the uproar, and there was no attempt to determine where the troops should advance or at what point the men were to fall in. One declared that the camp was already taken. Another insisted that the natives had come, flushed with victory from destroying the army and the chief. Nearly all, remembering where they were, conceived superstitious fancies and pictured to themselves the disaster that had befallen Kata and Tutorius who, as they imagined, had perished in the same fort. All being thus panic-stricken, the barbarians were confirmed in the notion, derived from their prisoner, that there was no force within. Striving to break through, they exhorted each other not to let such a chance slip from their grasp. Publius Sextius Baculus, who had served under Caesar's command as principal centurion, and who has been mentioned in connection with earlier engagements, had been left invalidated in the garrison, and had not tasted food for five days. Feeling anxious for his own safety and that of his comrades, he walked unarmed out of his tent, and seeing the menacing attitude of the enemy, in the extreme peril of the situation, borrowed weapons from the man nearest him, and planted himself in the gateway. The centurions of the cohort of the guard followed him, and for a short space they sustained the brunt of the fight together. Severely wounded, Sextius fainted, and was with difficulty saved by being passed along from hand to hand the breathing space thus gained enabled the rest to pluck up courage enough to man the fortifications and to make a show of defence meanwhile our soldiers who had finished cutting the corn heard the din from afar the horsemen rode on ahead and learned the gravity of the danger there was no entrenchment here to shelter the men in their terror raw recruits with no experience of war they turned to their tribune and centurions, waiting for orders. Not one of them had the courage to keep cool in the face of the unexpected. The barbarians descried the standards in the distance and abandoned their attack. At first, they believed that the legions, which, as they had learned from their prisoners, had gone on in a distant expedition, had returned. But afterwards, seeing that they were a mere handful, they charged them on every side. The servants ran forward to a knoll close by they were speedily dislodged and rushed pell-mell into the maniples as they stood in line, thereby increasing the terror of the soldiers. Some voted for forming in a wedge and making a rapid dash through the enemy, urging that, as the camp was so near, most of them could escape, even if a few of them were cut off and killed. Others for standing firm upon the hill and all taking the chance together. The veterans, who, as we have stated, had gone out with the rest under a separate command disapproved of this suggestion. Accordingly, led by Gaius Trebonius, a Roman knight, who had been placed in command of them, they charged, with mutual exhortations, through the mist of the enemy, and reached camp without the loss of a man. The servants and cavalry following close behind joined in the charge of the infantry, and owed their escape to their courage. Those, however, who had taken their stand upon the hill, and who even now had not learned what fighting meant, neither abide by their own resolution and defend themselves on their position or advantage, nor imitate the swift energy which, as they saw, was the salvation of the others, but in their attempt to get back to camp, abandoned the advantage of their position. The centurions, some of whom had been promoted for valor from the lower grades of the other legions to the higher grades of this, determined not to forfeit the credit that they had earned in the field, and died fighting with the greatest gallantry their brave stand compelling the enemy to fall back. Some of the soldiers unexpectedly reached camp in safety. The rest were surrounded by the natives and perished. The Germans, seeing that our men had by this time manned the works, abandoned the hope of storming the camp and recrossed the Rhine with the booty which they had left in the woods. Even after they had gone, the panic was so great that Gaius Bulusenius, who had been sent on with the cavalry, on arriving in camp that night, could not make the men believe that Caesar was close by, and the army with him, safe and sound. Fear had so completely taken possession of them, that they were almost beside themselves, and maintained that the whole force must have been annihilated, and that the cavalry alone escaped the rout. for, they insisted, if the army had been safe, the Germans would not have attacked the camp. Caesar's arrival, however, dispelled the panic. Caesar was well aware that in war it is the unexpected that happens. On his return, therefore, he made no complaint, except that the cohorts had been allowed to leave their proper place in the garrison, remarking that no opening should have been left even for the slightest accident, and he considered that fortune had shown her great power in the enemy's sudden arrival, and still more in having repelled the natives when they had all but gained the rampart and the gates of the camp. The most remarkable point in the whole incident was that the Germans, having crossed the Rhine with the object of ravaging the territories of Ambiorix, had been led to attack the Roman camp, and had thereby done Ambiorix the greatest service that he could desire. Caesar sent out once more to harry the enemy, and having got together a great horde from the neighboring tribes, let them loose in every direction. Every hamlet, every building that was to be seen was fired. Cattle were driven in from all parts, and the corn was not only devoured by the immense multitude of horses and men, but also laid by the autumnal rains. In fact, it seems certain that if any of the inhabitants concealed themselves for the time, they must perish after the withdrawal of the army from utter destitution. The cavalry, which was very numerous, was sent out in all directions. Often success was all but in their grasp, for prisoners who had just described Ambiorix making off looked round and insisted that he was barely out of sight, so that his pursuers, seeing a chance of running him down, made Herculean efforts, and, in the expectation of winning Caesar's favor, showed almost superhuman zeal. But always they seemed just to miss complete success. The quarry broke away from wooded glade or other lair, and hiding in the night made for another part of the country, his only escort was four horsemen, to whom alone he ventured to trust his life. After ravaging the districts in this way, Caesar led back his army, with the loss of two cohorts, to Dora cotorum, in the country of the Remi, at which place he convened a Gallic council, and proceeded to hold an inquiry into the conspiracy of the Sinones and Canutis. He pronounced the extreme sentence on Acco, the author of the movement, and executed him in the time-honored Roman fashion. Some of the conspirators, fearing to be brought to trial, fled, and Caesar interdicted them from fire and water. Having quartered two legions for the winter close to the Trevoran frontier, two among the Lingones, and the remaining six at Agidincum in the country of Senones, and arranged for a supply of corn for the army, he set out, according to his custom, for Italy to hold the Assises. End of Book 6, chapters 29 through 44.